This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of debriefing the briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. I, I, I had uh, an interview yesterday that I was asked a, a hypothetical question, and hypothetical questions sometimes can get you into some difficulty. Are you doing this voluntarily, or did no, the president- No, I'm doing it. I, uh, everything I do is voluntarily, please. Somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. Oh. And that's the way it's got to be. The authority is total. total. The authority of the President of the United States during national emergencies is unquestionably plenary. But who told you the President has the total authority? Enough. Please. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the highlights of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. The April 13th version was the 38th briefing of its kind. It lasted two hours, 23 minutes. President Trump participated for one hour and 44 minutes of the briefing and the first 39 minutes of the briefing were consumed with a clash between the president and reporters over their allegedly fake coverage of the administration's response to COVID-19. This, as the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the United States topped 23,000, and the number of confirmed cases in the United States topped 572,000. The president asked for an extension to conduct the 2020 census during the briefing. He also said that he will soon issue guidelines to reopen the country economically, suggesting that would be, quote-unquote, ahead of schedule, meaning possibly before May 1st. The Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, said by Wednesday of this week, 80 million Americans will receive direct payment checks. The Small Business Administration said that as of close of business Monday, 959,000 applications under the Paycheck Protection Program had been approved and $232 billion had been sent to small business owners around the country. The president also made this somewhat startling constitutional assertion. When somebody is president of the United States, states, their authority is total. He said federal power under emergency situations is quote-unquote absolute. I want to bring in 60 Minutes correspondent Bill Whitaker to discuss a 60 Minutes piece about the supply of vitally needed medical equipment on the front lines, particularly in New York. It's great to have you with us. I want to play for you a soundbite that I know you're familiar with, but our audience might just be catching up to, from a woman named Kelly Cabrera, an emergency room nurse at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. Do you have enough masks? No. Do you have enough face shields? No. 
gowns? No. How do you feel about going into work every day? Are, are you safe? No. Absolutely not. If you do a simple Google search, look at what other countries are wearing in comparison to us. I mean, it makes, I mean, it makes sense that we're getting infected. I, how, how could we expect not to? Bill, I'm very glad you're with us because those who watch the briefings or get any summary through this program know that there is a rather frequent recitation from administration officials about the volume of masks, gowns, and other equipment for frontline medical personnel surging into the system. And yet, based on your reporting, you discovered enormous gaps and people suffering who are on the front lines in the medical world as a result. True? Absolutely true, Major. Uh, We spoke with a number of doctors and nurses and administrators of hospitals here in New York. We featured two of them in our report yesterday, and uh, they told us over and over again, They do not have adequate PPE, the personal protective equipment. They just don't have what they need. That ordinarily, they would use a mask or a shield or gloves or a gown just once when dealing with an infected patient. Now, because they have so little of it, they are seeing people uh, repeatedly. Um, with the same materials on. The nurse told us that she is seeing people with um, what she called medical waste. And I was kind of shocked to hear her say that, medical waste. And she said, yeah, that's what we would call it. It's dirty. It's, it's stuff that we would have discarded in the past, but now we are wearing it you know, sometimes all day. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just not enough equipment here in, in the city of New York. And if I remember correctly, the nurse you spoke with said that under normal circumstances, she and her colleagues would be severely reprimanded for doing the things they are now called upon to do on a day-to-day basis. She said that they have sat and watched the CDC regulations on the use of their personal protective equipment change over the course of this pandemic. And she said the the change was not because the virus has all of a sudden become Uh, less dangerous. It's because the CDC knows that the hospitals here don't have enough equipment. equipment. So the CDC guidelines that uh, once required that you discard this equipment after each encounter with an infected patient now says you can wear a mask a little longer. You can wear the gowns a little longer. And she says that's, you know, that's purely because the CDC is aware that there's just not enough of this equipment. You also talked to a gentleman, a doctor named Sheldon Tepperman, who is the chief trauma surgeon at Jacoby. And you began to refer to something that the president has said more than once at the briefing. I want to play that clip. The president did say that the problem with some people is just no matter how much you give them, they say it's never enough. Well, (laughs) I would say come visit. We're taking care of, just in our system, America's largest public hospital system, thousands and thousands and thousands of COVID-positive patients. So, yeah, there's never going to be enough. Keep it coming. Because you don't want to go into those rooms, do you? We're going to go into those rooms. We just need to be properly protected. And, Bill, there were moments of that interview with Dr. Tepperman where he seemed, to my eye, 
overwhelmed at the enormity of the task that he was doing, not only in terms of the hours he was devoting to this, but the stress and strain he was feeling and those around him were feeling. And it almost felt to me as if he was contemplating his own personal breaking point. Am I overreading that? He is in charge of four ICUs here in the city. So he is seeing the, the worst of it. He is based in the Bronx, and the Bronx is the borough in New York that has the highest rate of, of uh, COVID um, uh, sickness, illness, and deaths. So he is seeing death on a scale that he has never seen it before. And um, he's tired, and he's frustrated, and he's you know trying to figure out how they can continue to provide the level of care that so far they have been able to, to provide. Um, but how will they continue to provide that level of care when they're running out of equipment and everybody is tired and they, they don't see an end in sight? Uh, New York has started to bend that curve. At least they believe so. There haven't been a number, uh, proper number of days that have passed to be able to say that they actually have bent the curve. But the number of people entering the hospital has declined over the past few days. So that's, that's a, a positive sign here. But meanwhile, so many people have been affected. The number of deaths continue to rise. So I think New York passed 10,000 deaths today. I mean, that's astonishing. And these doctors are on the front line and they're seeing it every single day. And when Dr. Tepperman sat down to talk with us, it was at the end of a 16-hour day, and he was just weary. And he told us that's kind of every day. So you also had an interview with a top economic advisor to President Trump. His name is Peter Navarro. And one of the topics you raised with him was whether there was anything this administration had to apologize for or account for in the COVID-19 response. I want to play part of that clip. No apologies here from this administration. We are, we are doing better and more than any other president could have done. Sir, this is the best you can? You say this is the best you can. It's like, oh, somebody could have done better. Really? Who could have done better on this? I mean, really, think about this. Bill, uh, how do you evaluate that response? Um, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around everything that was said there. It's, um, it, it's, well, much of what he said seems to be contrary to the facts. I mean, it, it's, that, that back and forth came after we uh, talked to him about um, um, reports that the intelligence community had notified the administration back in January, and some actually uh, back as far as Thanksgiving of last year, notifying the administration that this virus was out of control in China and was likely to spread here. And uh, Navarro insisted that no one knew, no one could have known. This is a black swan event. This is a 500-year flood, and you can't expect to be prepared for something like that. Well, just a few days after we conducted this interview with him, where he's saying no one could have known, Axios published a memo 
that Navarro himself had written back in January warning the administration that this epidemic then in China was out of control, was likely to spread to the United States, and was likely to take as many as a half million American lives and cost up to $5.7 trillion. So he himself had alerted the administration that this now pandemic was growing out of control. So it was just a little hard to take to have him sit in front of our cameras and say the exact opposite. And part of what that refers to is early warning signs that appear to have gone unheeded by the president, or if they were heeded, unacted upon. And I mentioned at the top of this episode that the April 13th briefing, the first nearly 40 minutes of it, was consumed with this aggressive back and forth and the president asserting over and over that the media was covering him unfairly and claiming that he had made this enormously important decision to restrict travel from China at the end of January. But then he was asked by our CBS colleague, Paula Reed about what happened in the intervening month of February. Bill, I want to play that for you. What did you do with the time that you bought? You know the we month did? of February. That, you that know we did? Gap. What, do you do? February. what do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? You had cases when in you, February. You, excuse me. You reported it. Zero cases, zero deaths on January 17th. January. February, the entire January. I said in January. Your video has a complete gap. On on January 30th. What did your administration do in February with the time that your travel ban bought A lot. A lot. And in fact, we'll give you a list. What we did, in fact, part of it was up there. We did a lot. Look, look. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. And most of you, and not all of you. But the people are wise to you. That's why you have a lower, a lower approval rating than you've ever had before, times probably three. So just to make it clear, beyond any doubt, given the opportunity to explain in detail what his administration did in the month of February to prepare the country for COVID-19 in terms of making purchase orders for N95 masks, surgical gowns, or intensive care gowns, or any kind of the medical equipment, personal protective equipment that Bill Whitaker and I have been discussing, the president did not assert anything done proactively in the month of February. He then accused the reporter, our colleague, and he's accused other reporters. We're not highlighting this because it's our colleague. We're highlighting it because it was a key question and a key back and forth. Given the opportunity to state Clearly and concisely, what the administration did in February, the president did not say anything, nor did he turn to the leader of his coronavirus task force, Vice President Mike Pence, to explain anything. That gap in the month of February, Bill, it it seems to me, looms very large in trying to understand what did and didn't happen and why it left nurses of the kind and doctors of the kind you met in New York in the situation they found themselves in and continue to find themselves in. Well, he did what he does so often, and and that is attack the messenger. The nurse we interviewed had a direct question for uh, Mr. Navarro. It's like, what took you so long? And he bristled at that. You know, what do you mean what took us so long? We, We moved at Trump time, which he said, which is fast and furious. And her point was that, There were six weeks from the time 
the administration found out to the time they actually started to do something. And even in our, I mean, do something substantive. I, I can't, you know, I can't say did nothing because there was the travel ban from China, and, you know, and the, the president is quick to point that out. But her point is that you're you're revving up the Defense Production Act, and that takes a while. And you're you're trying to get uh, ventilators to the to the states, and that you know still hasn't happened as, as far as the necessary numbers in the states. And so her point is, well, what took you so long? I mean, if you are aware that China controls the production of all of our medical equipment, our masks, the shields, and all of that is, is done in China. And we're aware of that. Why didn't we take some steps beforehand either to procure it or to get the Defense Production Act up and running more quickly? That was her direct question to him, transmitted through me. And he bristled at that and said that it was unfair. I don't think it's unfair. I think it's a legitimate question. Why are American healthcare workers in this position? And as Kelly Cabrera, the emergency room nurse, said, we are the richest, most powerful, most medically advanced country on earth. How did we end up in this position? And I have not heard a good answer from Peter Navarro, and certainly today not from the president. And a couple of other things that emerged in the April 13th briefing was uh, assertion by the coronavirus task force that testing continues to ramp up and testing will be crucial to creating an opportunity to reopen the country economically so people can be sure what their exposure level is, what their co-workers' exposure level is or isn't. And that's also something that was not ramped up in that crucial month of February. But it's interesting also to note, Bill, and I'd like to get your reaction to this, that at the very tail end of the briefing or near the tail end of the briefing, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institutes of Health, was asked if mistakes were made that a future president could learn from. And he said, I'm reluctant to use the phrase mistake. But he said, when I think about my own assessment of COVID-19, he said, it was much more efficiently transmitted than I originally thought. It was much more lethal than I originally thought. And that my worst nightmare of an efficiently transmittable, highly lethal virus didn't manifest itself as early as I wish it had. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci has become a credible and trusted voice within the administration, within the federal government on this. And his own sense that maybe he could have been more either inquisitive or aggressive in his earliest assessments of COVID-19, it seems to me at least creates some other dimension of evaluating the overall administration performance. You, What do you think? Um, yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like there's plenty of, um, I don't want to say blame, there are lots of questions uh, to be answered. When we were talking with Peter Navarro, he he, he himself said that there needs to be a commission after this to take a look at what went wrong. And he was generally admitting that something has gone wrong, but it, now is not the time to talk about it. We need to figure out how to address this problem now and later. Take a look at how we got here. And um, you know, when we when we were discussing with Peter Navarro, I said something about how. In uh, an instance like this, every 
every month counts, every week counts, every day counts. And he said, every minute counts. So it's like, you know, they are aware that delay means death. And there was a lot of delay here. And there's turned out to be a lot of death here. One thing that I think can fairly be observed is opportunities were missed and things that could have been done weren't done. And that they were not done created a gap, created a gap in availability of things that nurses and frontline doctors need and in some cases still need, that the country needs in terms of testing and surveillance, all those things that don't exist in the numbers everyone in the country would like to see are at least partially attributable to decisions not made, things not set in motion, and opportunities missed. Bill Whitaker, I want to thank you very much for joining us. That is all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I am Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.